0: Alexia Gordon, author of the Gethsemane Brown Mysteries, published by Henry Press, and host of the Cozy Corner podcast, part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Joining me in the Cozy Corner today is Susanna Calkins, author of Murder Knocks Twice, the first book in the new Chicago Speakeasy series from Minotaur. We're here at the Deer Path Inn, a Chicagoland historic hotel dating back to 1929, where we're enjoying Negroni's. And Susie's about to tell me.
1: Clink, clink, clink.
0: <laughs> Susie's also ordered a bourbon Ricky, and so she's going to tell
1: me what that one's like. <laughs> Welcome, Susie. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be doing my first cocktail induced uh, interview here with you. <laughs> So before the cocktails have a chance to kick in, uh,
0: why don't you tell us about Murder Knox Twice? What inspired you to write a mystery set in 1929 Prohibition-era
1: Chicago? Yeah, no, so I was really interested in, in, uh, in, a, in a different kind of genre. My previous books have been set in 17th century England, and I thought it would be kind of fun to write about something a little more current, a little more contemporary. I realize 1929 is not necessarily current, but compared to the 17th century, it sure is. And, uh, you know, I, I've, I'm a Chicago transplant. I live in the area now, but I didn't grow up here. And the first thing when I got here was everybody was always talking about the prohibition. And I just felt like it was still this very lived thing. And I thought, I would love to set a book during this fantastic time with the 1920s. You know, so much going on. I mean, not just cocktails, but, you know, crime. And, you know, things are really changing in the 20s. And I just thought, this is a perfect time to set a, uh, a mystery.
0: And speaking of being a professional historian, you're a trained professional historian with the PhD to prove it. So, how did your professional skills help you research this time period? Yeah,
1: you know, it was it was pretty fun. I mean, it, you know, with my other books, 17th century England, those were the ones that my dissertation, my doctorate was in. I spent all this time doing academic research, but um, you know, a lot of that did translate over to the 1920s. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, thinking about the background and how to actually research a topic. But what I found was I spent a lot of time reading through the Chicago Tribune. I read every Tribune edition throughout 1929 from January 1st to the end to get a real flavor for the time and how people spoke and thought about things. And also I listened to music, which was very different from the way I had done my other research, and I thought a lot about, um, you know, as we say, cocktails, and I did watch some silent films, and, you know, I was, I was looking through the Sears and Roebuck catalog, so I think my skills thinking about as a professional historian, I really kind of um, made sure that I was still bringing in the fun elements of the time period as well.
0: And did you find any challenges from switching to
1: researching a time period other than the one that you specialize in? Yeah, I mean, in some ways it was a little bit easier because it's so much more, there's so much more about it prevalent that it's so easy at our fingertips. I mean, you know, I mean, I joke about it, but I can take the gangster tour of Chicago, but actually it's very helpful. I mean, not just that you duck from, like, gunshots going over your head and, you know, pretend and get to pre- pretend to be part of Capone's, you know, guys. Um, But it's also, you know, it was actually a great way to just get a sense of, like, where things were in the city. and It's like, oh, this is so helpful. And, you know, there's actually... You know, the Green Mill, which is a Prohibition-era speakeasy that's real st- still running, and, you know, I, a lot of my, my third door is kind of based a little bit on the Green Mill, um, you know, it's it's just still just so lived, I mean, you could just go all these places, and, you know, there's so much about Prohibition that's still around today, It's it's pretty fun. <laughs>
0: Now, you also write a series set in the 17th century. Do you find it difficult to switch back and forth between 1929 Chicago and 17th century
1: Pirates? <laughs> yeah, it is a little bit. I mean, I was literally, um, before I got here, I was working up the street at the Starbucks on my new Lucy Campion novel set in 17th century. And I was, you know, mostly it was fine to jump back into that world, but there was a little bit of... Um, you know, I kept calling my character Gina instead of Lucy, and I had to kind of rethink, um, you know, where I was. And there was one point I think I have Gina calling Adam, and I was like, oh, no telephones in the seventeenth century. <laughs> but otherwise, uh, you know, it was not so bad. Um, but uh, you know, I I, I've been, I was able to kind of jump back and forth. Although right now I'm mentally trying to be like, oh yeah, cocktails. That's Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> But you said Mead
0: would fit right in with the seventeenth. Right. So I tried. So what I
1: did for my um, the novels, as I mentioned, the new ones. I said I'm going to try a new approach. So I was listening to music, um, set, you know, nineteen twenties music. So my books actually have quite a few song titles in it because it's kind of fun because it helped me like get in the mood. And they're a little lighter than my other books. And and um and I think that was really helpful. I thought, well, I'm going to see what happens if I go back to the seventeenth century and listen to. Seventeenth-century music, and you know, they're all logicals and <laughs> like, like. But it worked, you know. So my fifth book, I actually tried one of the tactics, and you know, and I was like, I joke about drinking beer when I'm writing, and I was like, well, oh, that actually is sort of working, you know. Only I could read what I wrote later, you know, which would be
0: really helpful. <laughs> <laughs> So I assume as part of your professional life. You also write academic papers as well as crime fiction. So how do you switch between doing research aimed at the
1: academic community versus research aimed at writing popular fiction? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of, you know, my day job, I, I, which I don't always talk about too much. I work, at a, I'm a director at a learning and teaching center. So I do research on learning and teaching and how students learn and how faculty teach. And um, yeah, so I read a lot of academic articles. Um, but often those are with, almost always those are with at least one other person. So it's actually kind of great. You write a section, you send it back to somebody else. They work on it. They send it back to you. And then, you know, soon it's done. It's it's actually, like, not that hard in a way, like, you know, in the same kind of way. Like, Wouldn't it be great to just be like, here, you write a chapter now of your book, you know? So, you know, and those follow more of a structure and they're a little, they're, they're a different kind of creativity. And actually, I find it very helpful to, like, work on something like motivation and engagement of students and think about that and then, like, have my brain clear out, because then by the time I'm ready to come back to my novel writing, then I'm ready to go. Although I've seen some interesting parallels, there's going to be a point I think I might write a book for writers related to motivation, because I've learned a lot that I think I could apply to a new new context, so at some point they'll probably join up a little bit.
0: And getting back to writing about Chicago, uh, modern Chicago differs greatly from the Chicago of 1929. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that does. This is almost 100 years ago now. It's a little scary to think about. (laughs) Yeah. So tell me about the challenges of recreating a world that's nearly a century past.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting thing because I actually think that a lot of the challenges and problems that Chicago's facing currently have to do with the prohibition and things that happen therein, you know, with the... um, I mean, we talk about or- rise of organized crime. And I mean, those the the, the the gang warfare between the Irish and the Italians in particular, that still plays out in the politics of today. So to me, it's like, it's actually still very relevant. Um, you know, the issues, maybe not so much around alcohol, but you see that around vaping, you know, there's like similar questions around, um, you know, issues of what should be banned and what should be allowed. And that I mean, um, but, you know, I set my books in um, where the University of Illinois Chicago is at. And I did that deliberately. That's on the west side of Chicago. And, you know, it's quite terrible for the community in the 1960s. They built this campus there. Um, you know, it's very disruptive. And it was an uh, Irish mayor put it into basically an Italian area. Um, and it was part of these longstanding gang tensions, really. And um, to me, you know, it was terrible for a community. But for a writer, it's great to be able to with something like I can recreate my own world you know in a world that didn't exist I can can say oh sure I had a barbershop there or a speakeasy there and nobody's gonna tell me that it wasn't but um but yeah I mean there's still a lot I mean I when I walk around and I sit down in those so there are still like some cafes and places that are still around you know I I sit there and I do like kind of see the other world you know (laughs) I kind of I guess I sort of melt away the stuff that seems now and I just kind of look to see the old gilded structures and you know I kind of see the framework that was under you know the skeleton I guess (laughs) that's underneath (laughs) it all. So understanding historical Chicago helps understand modern Chicago? Mm -hmm. I think so very much so and I think if you don't really try to understand the past you really don't understand the present very well so our problems are deep-rooted and they they come from somewhere they didn't just come out of nowhere.
0: Uh, Speaking of understanding the past, speakeasies by their very nature were secret. (laughs) People were breaking the law. So that's the type of place that's not going to leave a whole lot of records. Yeah. So what kind of challenges did you face in researching something that was never meant to be widely known about?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. I think, you know, there are like anecdotal stories of people talking about how they would go into these speakeasies and the passwords. I mean, in some ways there was sort of like an open secret. Like people did know, you know, and the the password thing I think was authentic and real, but I think, you know, to kind of make sure that it was a shared... it helped people feel like we're all part of this secret so if we tell others we're going to ruin it for ourselves so there was this sense of community that was built by having these open secrets but i also think that um you know there's still a lot that's hidden and we don't know and there aren't really records um i did just find out about a speakeasy in the sky in chicago (laughs) it's like for Like millionaires, like it was on you know like the 40th floor of this building, and you know nobody could get up there except for like the really great elites, you know. And I just, I had no idea that there were because you think of them always kind of underground, literally underground, like mine or at least. Underground in terms of furtive and secret, so I had never thought about. Well, there's this whole other ones in the clouds that nobody really does know about. But those were documented. They actually kept oh. records of somebody like, people coming in <laughs> and out. And I was like, oh, I want to get a hand on those records. <laughs> but you're right. Mostly, I mean, I had to kind of just create my speakeasy best that I could from my own sense of what a speakeasy is. I made it much bigger than it probably would have been, and I made it much grander than it would have been. Maybe lighting about this light. You know, I had chandeliers, and, uh, you know, I wanted it to be kind of fancy, not like a, a you know, hole in the wall. Right. So I, I just, I used my imagination based off of some real speakeasy, like pictures survived. So I, I built it around the pictures that I saw mostly.
0: I and how about the 20s slang? You incorporate 20s slang into your dialogue, and you do it in a way that seems very natural. It's not just there for effect, fact; doesn't feel forced. So, it's you know, it's one thing to listen to the music. Uh, the films were mostly silent, so you couldn't really hear the way people talked and their cadence. So, how did you kind of get that sound of the 1920s lingo? Yeah,
1: no thanks, jeepers! <laughs> You're keen. <laughs> You're at <the> bee's knees. <laughs> you know, I, you know, it was just kind of fun. I mean, I, I listened. You know, some of that slang, the cadence, I think is still kind of around. I grew up in Philadelphia and I think some of that, the way people speak, kind of still sounds a little, not like, hey, I'm a gangster (laughs) sheep. You know, I don't think they quite do that anymore, but there's still this way of, I think there is this sort of way of understanding how people talk that's still around, you know, just <laughs> substituting some of the language. The problem is, of course, it's really hard to not sound cliched, and I had to try to find expressions instead of, like, mind your beeswax, which might just sound corny. I went with mind your apples, which I thought might be more interesting, like, and still convey the same tone. It's definitely hard to not sound cliche, you know, when it's, but it is the authentic language. It was not a problem I had with, writing my 17th century novels where that slang is just not known, you know, so I could say anything and <laughs> it was fine but I had to li- it was a little harder to be, you know, judicious and not you know, trying not to fall into traps that everybody already knows these words
0: mm-hmm.
1: and how else
0: Speaking of research into the 1920s, tell, about, tell us about your research into the 1920s cocktails as oh. we enjoy our Negronis and Bourbon Rickeys. <laughs> so
1: how many did you taste test? So I came across this thing where there was 100 Prohibition-era cocktails, and I thought, okay, I can do this. And I did this like you know, a year before my publication date. I said, I can totally drink 100 cocktails and try a 100 in a year. I got to about 35 and I started hitting the ones that were all like absent related and I was like oh this is disgusting I <laughs> mean so many of them were just disgusting you know because they really were just designed to cover the swill that they called gin and you know so um I thought that's a quest I don't need to continue I, <laughs> I was I was sort of going and then I have an door neighbor who used to be a bartender so she was great she come over and help me make them and she knew exactly how because I seriously had no idea I didn't even understand some of the recipes so so it was great that she was able to help me figure it out but I did try to put that into the books and you helped me with some cocktail research (laughs) which went into my second book
0: (laughs) I have no idea what she's talking about (laughs) it's in my second book
1: So what were some of your favorites? Um, so I really like um, I do like the, a bourbon ricky, um, and I like a gin ricky, um, and then I also like gin flowers. There's, yeah, there's a couple of those. I like the name, so some of the names I like better than the actual drink. I really like the one called a corpse reviver, which is what you're supposed to drink after you've been drinking all night, and so okay. I don't know what's in it, but I really like the title because I think that's really cool. Um, and then it, the Aviations, which were named for the Lindberghs, um, oh, you know, and, named, and I kind of like some of these, but they were blue like the sky, so uh, yeah, it's so kind of cool, um, you know, kind of cool to think through the titles and stuff, but I actually find a lot of them kind of sweet, so I'm not as fond of, <laughs> you know, some of these drinks as much as you think
0: And did you have to make them all yourself with your neighbor, or were you able to find some modern bartenders who were skilled in the 1920s? Yeah, they'll make
1: them. I mean, we'll see how they do with my bourbon Ricky. I'm sure they will do a fantastic job. It's a lovely establishment.
0: (laughs) And where did you find the uh, cocktail books for the ones that she made yourself?
1: Uh, You know, I just... Sales actually just you know funny enough at the Lake Forest book sale not too far from here I found a couple on I found one on yeah the cocktail uh prohibition era cocktails was where I started with and then I just every time I go out I'm like yeah that sounds like an interesting, interesting book with interesting cocktails so yeah. and
0: speaking of the prohibition era Crime Reads just published an article called Crime Novels in the Age of Prohibition this past September fourth. How does it feel to be on the same list as Dashiell Hammett? Yeah, that was pretty
1: awesome. Um, so Ashley Weaver, another pretty great author, um, wrote wrote that piece, and I really appreciated her including me in there. That's such an honor, and it's such a fun some such a fun thing to be included in. <laughs> thank
0: you. <laughs> so
1: that's about all
0: the questions I have for today. So thank you for joining me in the cozy corner. Yeah. And this has been Alexia Gordon, author of the Gethsemane Brown Mysteries, chatting with Susanna Calkins, author of Murder Knocks Twice, the first of Minotaur's new Chicago Speakeasy series, available now. So, where can readers find the copy of Murder Knox Twice?
1: It it is everywhere, Um, thank goodness. You know, so it's available through um, Barnes & Noble or Amazon or your local independent bookseller or the local library. Um, And if it's not there, you can always ask them to see if they'll get it. (laughs) And then the next book in the series is um, coming out in July, Uh, so it's called The Fate of a Flapper. So it picks up um, a few months, right uh, right around the the stock market crash of of 1929, so it kind of tells the story of, and actually the Cubs and the Philadelphia Athletics are also vying for the World Series. I, I don't know if I need to tell you that the Cubs do not necessarily fare that well. I um, know. Hey, when did the curse start? Yeah, it started a few <laughs> years before that. <laughs> I may continue it there. <laughs> hey, and where can readers find you? Oh, I am accessible on um, at suzannacalkins.com, and also I'm on Twitter, S. Calkins. And I'm on Facebook as well under my name, Susanna Collins. And of course our listeners can't see this, but your bourbon
0: Ricky just arrived. Yes. So what do you
1: think of the bourbon Ricky? Mm. Oh, it's the bee's knees. Um, What else can I say? Uh, It's the elephant's ears. It's um, oyster's earrings. (laughs) It's all these silly. You know, these were the phrases. They're all just silly phrases. Oyster's earrings, okay. I'll turn for that one. (laughs) But uh, thank you, listeners,
0: for joining us in the Cozy Corner, part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.